Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Steve Mills, who returned to talk with me about an interesting theory he has regarding the events behind the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, perhaps the best known event of that type in the UK. To summarise, on the 26th of December 1980, unusual lights were reported in the vicinity of RAF Woodbridge in Suffolk, an air base which was being used by the United States Air Force at the time. Initial investigation by Air Force servicemen resulted in some reports of a glowing craft being sighted in the neighbouring forest, but this could not be corroborated, and later investigation by the police also yielded no answers, although an unusual triangular set of impressions were discovered in the ground close to where the craft was reported. Further studies by the United States Air Force two days later, at the site of those markings, would prompt more unusual activity. They were led by the deputy base commander, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt, and the tape of that investigation has survived. I'll play a little bit of that for you now. This is about 10 minutes into the recording. The first voice you will hear is that of Lieutenant Colonel Holt. Looking directly overhead, one can see an opening in the trees, plus some freshly uh, broken pine branches on the ground underneath. Looks like someone came off about 15 to 20 feet up. Some small branches about an inch or less in diameter. Zero 148, we're hearing very strange sounds out of the farmers burning our animals. It's very, very active, making an awful lot of noise. It has an pigmentation. You just saw a light Where? Right on this position here. Straight ahead in between the tree. There it is again. Watch. Straight ahead off my flash right there. Yeah, so there it is. Hey, I see it too. What is it? We don't know, sir. So, yeah, can I guess I'm Yeah, it's a strange, small red light. Looks like uh, maybe a quarter to a half mile, maybe further out. I'm going to switch off. The light is gone now. It was approximately 120 degrees from the site. Is it back again? Yes, sir. Oh, that's flashlight set. Let's move out to the edge of the clearing so I can get a better look at it. See if you can get the star scope on it. The light's still there, and all the barnyard animals have gotten quiet now. It's clear from the recording 
that Lieutenant Colonel Holt is a little spooked by what he is seeing. But there isn't a lot to indicate that what happened involved extraterrestrials. That's not to say that something unusual didn't happen, and Steve's ideas as to what that might have been are very interesting, and explore areas not often looked into by other researchers. Anywho, on with the show. Enjoy! Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Rick. You contacted me to talk about Rendlesham Forest and your thoughts on that incident in areas that might not have been looked at before in regards to what happened. Yes. Um, start with Rendlesham himself, which is has a long, torrid history of strangeness, which is something which tends to be overlooked, uh, particularly by Dr. David Clark, who's a folklorist, which is kind of interesting. Um, the forest itself has been there since the year dot. The current plantation, which is pine, is not what the forest used to be. It used to be deciduous. And uh, it has a long history of strangeness. Today, red orbs are still regularly reported, seen by locals, just floating through the trees. Um, there used to be a mermaid that lived in the pool that used to be in the forest. The last record of that is from the 19th century from a chronicle, Almanac-style book, which talks about it. Um, mermaids used to be uh, spirits that lived in inland pools, not out at sea. They've changed over the years. And they were considered as guardians to a portal to the other world. So Rendlesham's already had this history. It had black dogs associated to it as well, the black shook or whatever you care to call it. So we're talking about a place which has a high history of weirdness, where people have never really wanted to live in an area that has been under pressure to produce uh, crops rather than forests. Now, sometimes forests are built, or built, grown, uh, on coastal areas to bind the soil together and they ne- the soil itself never ever becomes good enough to cultivate, but that's not the case in, in Randallship. If it went as the normal places in that part of Suffolk and Nor- uh, Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex do, there would be a thin band of trees, maybe six or eight deep to act as a windbreak from the sea. And then you'd have farmland and there is, You know, there are a couple of farms in and around the forest. But that's unusual because it's the oldest area of cultivated, long, of permanently cultivated land in the UK. At a time, if you go go back to the Normans, 90% of of England and Wales was covered in forest. The Great Forest, of which Sherwood, the Forest of Arden, the Forest of Dean, all these places, they're all part of one big forest which reached from North Yorkshire to the South Coast. Most of the large centres of population in, the, in, the, in England and Wales at the time were coastal, or they were on rivers. The rest of the land was effectively wild. So we're talking about a part of the UK where there was always been a pressure to produce corn rather than trees. And yet Rendlesham is this sizable forest in that area. And I think that suggests that People just don't feel comfortable living there. It's a thin place, what the Celts used to call a thin place. It's haunted. And there's something in the psyche of all humans 
because these places occur all around the world. It's one of the few things that all humans have as some sort of memory, shared memory, is that certain places in humans do not mix. Meon Hill in Warwickshire, Barbary Castle in Salisbury, on the Salisbury Plain. And often these places are taken over by the military because they've got low, such low levels of population, there's no real issue in moving people out. It's fairly easy to take them over. So rather than the conspiratorial idea that the military take over these places, blah, blah, it's not. It's when they originally took them over, they took them over because they were the easiest places to get because there were so few people they had to move out. So Salisbury Plain, where you've got dozens of Stone Age monuments, and Rendlesham, similar. Two large air bases in an area where you really wouldn't expect to find them. So Rendlesham has this long history, and then people just sort of ignore that when they think about what happened on over the over the Christmas. And when you think about, as I mentioned, the red orbs in the trees, that fits neatly with partly what I think it was Holt on the third night saw. That was one of the things that they reported, that there was moving through the trees. Wow, you know, the bit from the Holt tape, etc. So I think it interests me. And this goes for all UFO incidents. It's not just Randallshire that people don't look into the background of these areas because often there's a key. And often there'll be a prosaic, even prosaic explanations for seemingly crazy events. South Warwickshire, about a decade ago, I captured a really good video <coughs> of these anomalous lights. And they were sort of golden orange in a, in a cluster that were literally floating. And they weren't balloons or anything like that. It was, it was about three o'clock in the morning when this occurred. So um, I looked at it, and when I saw where the guy came from, he was from South Warwickshire, and the, the video was taken in South Warwickshire. Well, South Warwickshire is a fault line. In fact, it moved. We had a small earthquake about a decade ago. Enough to, that there was, it was like a loud crack, even heard in Coventry, where I live. So I, looked at it, I said, that's classic earth lights, and it's triboluminescence caused by the fault line. I mean, people remember, this is a fault line which is nine miles long. So you're talking about two rock faces rubbing up against each other for nine miles. If you think about the tonnage of rock that that involves, it only has to move half a millimetre to create an enormous amount of energy. Mm. And that energy is released in a form of plasma as triboluminescence. And that's and many UFOs can be explained by that. That's fine. Got no problem with that. But that's not the case in Rendlesham. Right, yeah. So These, these orbs in... Sorry, Rick, go. For the sake of people who aren't perhaps overly familiar with the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident, is it worth just going through the basic events and the main players in terms of who was involved? Yeah. Uh, on the first night, um, security personnel, this was Peniston, and I can never remember, is it Burroughs who was with Peniston that night, on the first night? That sounds familiar. Yeah. On the first night, uh, two American servicemen were allowed off base to check what they thought was an air was an airplane crash crash in the forest. They saw a light come down. They saw it descend into the forest. It was bright enough for them to to, to think, "Oh wow, there's an aircraft crashed into the forest! My God, get out there!" 
So several American personnel. So this is one of the problems. It's only just coming out now how many people were involved in it. It was always couched originally that it was really just Penniston, I think, Burroughs, who investigated in the forest on the first night. The truth is, it looks like there's probably more like a dozen or so American troops left the base and actually went into the forest. And it's only now, with the sort of passage of time with people retiring, where they feel sort of confident enough to come forward and say, well, actually, I was there, uh, but obviously I didn't say anything because I was asked not to for 30 years because of my career in, in the forces. And that's, you know, you understand that. That's perfectly understandable. Anyway, Penniston is the main character. Claims to have had uh, a close encounter, i.e. as in touched, a triangular object that had landed in the trees in the forest. Um, since then, he's claimed that he, that he wrote in his notebook a whole series of binary code which he doesn't remember writing himself consciously that turns out to be this weird message about um, uh, exploration of humanity, uh, with a date, and then a series of coordinates which uh, are sort of sacred places all over the world, like the pyramids. Um, uh, what's the name of the island off Ireland? Oh, High Brazil. High Brazil, yes. High Brazil. The coordinates to High Brazil are meant to be there. Um, people have questioned this, and I think that's fair, fair play. I sometimes wonder if Penniston, as he was debriefed, was given false information under the influence of drugs by the people who debriefed him so that if he ever did come out with this, they could all turn around and say, well, it's a load of rubbish. Right. Because the Americans <laughs> do have a habit of doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Um, on the second night, which is the one that's only really just come into sort of prominence, involved a female member of the security forces who, to this, I think she's only just gone public with it. I haven't read her exact account. All I know is, is that she was shipped home within three days and received mental counselling for quite some years afterwards to cope with what she saw on the second night. And that was a night that would be... See, it all gets confusing because it takes place in the AM. You're never quite sure whether it's the 25th or the 26th. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah. The dates sometimes get confused because you'd say it was Friday night, but in actual fact, it's Saturday morning, if you see what I mean. Hmm. We call it Friday night because it's 2 AM, but in actual fact, it's 2 AM Saturday morning. And there's been some confusion because of that. Um. So the, the second night, we don't really know the details, aside that from some sort of object appeared to this, she was a female security tech, and she completely freaked out. Like I say, you know, she's only just come forward and begun to tell a story. So that one's two nights in a row. Then on the third night, there's more activity, and the, one of the, it's a deputy base commander, isn't he, Holt? Colonel Holt was the deputy base commander. I'll have to try and get the rankings right on these things. Um, <laughs> no, no, don't want to do disservice to anybody. It's of the opinion, look, this is getting ridiculous. Are people mucking around? I'm going to go out there and show you that nothing happened. There's no such thing as UFOs, etc., etc. Goes out into the forest with quite a few people. I think, it, I think it's now they reckon there's at least a dozen went with Holt and possibly more. And he has... Any, he has quite sort of a continuing experience which goes on for about two hours 
which is one of those things. It's hard to, you know, it starts off with lights in the sky, then they're seeing UFOs, then they're seeing UFOs coming down quite clear. It's a craft, it's shining the light down. People are reporting that the craft is shining a light onto the bunkers, which contain possibly, possibly contain weaponry. Um, and uh, there's more than one craft. Uh, people are report uh, this was all watched by the security people from the base themselves, from the security tower, which is one thing that um, Hesseltine is his name, the ex copper who does the uh, military stuff. Right, yeah. He's very good on that. He knows he's worth listening to because he knows how these people work. It's what he did himself. So when you listen to Hesseltine, he knows the procedure. You're not talking, you're not listening to some civilian who's sort of winging it. This is a guy who knows exactly how these people work. And it turns out that the whole events were witnessed by at least 20 people from various parts of the base and other people in the base reported the uh, craft, object, whatever you want to call it, being over the bunkers and shining this what's look, what people described as a laser, but I think it's really, it's a bit pejorative to call it a laser because we simply don't know what that light was. It could be a laser. It could be just a torch for all we know. But I think in the context of, of these happenings, if you're a military person, you deal with the hard realities of life. That's what being in the military is about. When something like this is, happens to military people, they're the worst equipped people to deal with it because it's just not on their agenda at all. So often military people will have a completely sort of freak out reaction to something that maybe you or I, who have as an interest in this thing, are just looking going, wow, that's interesting. If you're military, it's a direct threat to you. Hmm. So when you see a craft hovering over a base, you freak. You and I look at it and go, well, that's dead cool. What's it doing now? To them, a light is a laser because it's a threat. It's a weapon. Do you understand what I mean? They, they weaponize the incident because that's what they're trained to do. Hmm. It's, it's the way they think about it. Right, yeah. So you have to remember that you, they view whatever they see in terms of anomalous phenomenon through the eyes of a military person and that's perfectly understandable hmm. but you have to bear that in mind that they are viewing it with a bias and this is one of the things about ufos ghosts whatever all paranormal phenomenon we all view them from our own personal experience and bias and i think most people who work in the field will tell you that that bias often has an effect on what we act, the experience we have. So for Holt, it's a military experience. That's what he's, that's what he's trained for. He could easily have missed things because he was looking, in, in the same way that you or I wouldn't see the military side of something that he would see, so if the ship moves in a particular way, it's performing a particular maneuver. If you, do you understand that he's looking at yeah. that and thinking that in strategic terms, what it's doing, you and I are looking at it and going, wow, well, how do you do that? And I think that's, that's really important when we're talking about the paranormal, that all of us bring to us, bring to the paranormal, our own learned history and, and inbuilt biases. Yeah. So do you think that that's why, 
the narrative that there's been so far and the explanations that have been presented for what has been going on are the way that they are. Yes, I think if you if you're convinced that UFOs are all are all uh, extraterrestrial nuts and bolts craft, that's what that's the experience you will have. Fatima is the absolute classic is the absolute classic example of this. Was it fifty thousand people? Some people see the Virgin Mary. Some people see the sun. Other people see a silver shining disc, which looks like a UFO. That's a classic example of what we're talking about. And if you, it's perfectly possible to say, well, maybe that's a form of stealth. Maybe that's the ultimate form of stealth. That you could observe another civilization because. Whoever sees you will never agree with the person standing next to them what they yeah. actually saw. So, you know, one person sees God, one person sees the Virgin Mary, another person sees a UFO, another person sees the sun. You've got no, there's no cohesiveness to the evidence. So anybody who calls themselves a scientist will just dismiss it out of hand and just say, well, you all were wrong. You can't mm. all be right, so you must all be wrong. But... It's a great way of studying humanity, isn't it? If if you are, you, you can basically get up close to us, and we still don't know who you're looking at. What's actually looking at us? So maybe that is an explanation. That's a possibility that has to be on the table. So, but mm. yes, if you're looking for, um, I mean, the Jacques Vallée, uh, I tend towards the Jacques Vallée that it was some sort of psyop, but I believe. It was the British. I don't think it was the Americans. Right, okay. I think it was the British using radar over Christmas when nobody else was around. With a few, uh, So most of the British staff would have been off, gone back to see the, you know, they'd all be celebrating themselves. You call in one or two pros from whatever area who, who know the rules, they don't speak about it. They were using radar, in my opinion. I think they were using radar to try and make a UFO appear. And it worked. Unfortunately, the Americans stumbled into it. Because, uh, you know, Vince Thurkettle, the guy who came up with the idea about the lighthouse originally, hmm. well, he also made two other statements about Rendlesham, which tend to get overlooked. He said that in the wake of Rendlesham, we had sort of MIB, MOD types coming around to people's houses, knocking on people's doors and demanding they tell them if they had any experience of what happened that night. And he also claimed there were unknown soldiers in Rendlesham Forest that night wearing in all black uniforms that were not, that were not Americans. And those two little bits, uh, little tidbits, both from Thursday. Maybe he's talking rubbish. I don't know. I really don't know. Um, but there is precedence for people not being Americans in military uniforms present in the forest that night. Okay. Now, that could have just been half a dozen select troops from the British going to the forest. Anything shows up, tell us, get in touch with us and tell us. And I think we have to look at the history of British um, Secret Service, not the MI6 or MI5, but go back to the SOE and pro even prior to that, that the British 
I believe, have been running some sort of... Oh God, I hate to use the term. X-Files Bureau as a sort of standby organisation where you've got two or three people who they trust on these sort of issues who work out of an office that nobody knows about and it only needs to be a single room. We're not talking about some great new thing with a couple of people who are, who are, who are sort of assigned to it that whereby they run their own experiments and they're completely above all the rest of the security forces. And I think Winston Churchill had something to do with putting them in place. And I think they probably, it goes back to the SOE, which was Churchill's own little baby. And the rest of the security forces hated them. This is one thing that has to be remembered about the SOE. MI6 military intelligence disliked them intensely. The SOE is a special operations executive. Exactly, yes. Yeah, the special operations executive seemed to produce... A remarkable amount of people who ended up writing about the occult or making films about lots of fantasy things, i.e. Um, oh, why do I always forget his name? It's really weird, isn't it? Uh, Ian Fleming, hmm. Dennis Wheatley, Michael Benteen from The Potties and The Goons. Um, even my old friend Rex Dutter, who was my sort of mentor, he was military intelligence, and we believe he then moved to SOE after he was wounded at Dunkirk and he lost his leg. He lost part of his leg at Dunkirk working for military intelligence. And George Crichton from Crichton, Crichton from the early UFO field, he was a diplomat, career diplomat. Hmm. We're talking about, if you look at the UFO sort of club, if you take out the sort of um, George Kings of the world, and you look at the people involved with UFO, ufology in the 50s and 60s in the UK, they're lords. They're all ex-Secret Service and people from the war. It's like they knew there was something going on already. I mean, Churchill, Churchill's first interest in UFOs goes back to 1912 with the Gravesend incident, which if you look at you can go and look it up. That was where Churchill first got interested in UFOs. We now know that from a freedom of information request in the USA, that the British government specifically asked the Americans not to arrest Alistair Crowley, and they didn't say why. Even though it looked like, on the surface, Alistair Crowley was actually working for the Central Powers during World War One. yet the British government contacted the American government and said, under no circumstances, arrest Crowley. So we're talking about... These people did work for the government. If you watch, if you go listen, watch, listen on YouTube to the Michael Benteen interview about his experiences with, with the parapsychology, he talks. He Michael Benteen actually claims that the head of the SOE operations was a full-on mage. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I mean, Michael Benteen's not sort of given to flights of fantasy on these things. He worked there. I mean, he, he tells jokes about it. He said, you know, I speak four languages, one of them which is not Polish. So being the British <laughs> Army, they put me, they made me liaison officer to the Polish Corps, <laughs> security <laughs> officer to the Polish Corps. Um, hmm. uh, except, I mean, he, he, had an, he, he went to, visited one of the, he was there when they liberated one of the uh, death camps with one of the Polish things it's, it, his story about it, that's really fascinating but he claims that the head, effectively the working head of the soa was a full-on mage um the character who was used in um doctor who recently 
who was uh, Noor Khan, who was uh, uh, murdered by the Nazis after somebody betrayed her. Her father was one of the leading, was the leading Islamic Sufi in Russia. Right. And she ends up working for the SOE. I mean, the connections between occultism and intelligence agencies is, is really interesting. Yes. And I think what people have to remember, uh, people have to remember is there's something called continuity in history. And the problem is, if you don't, if you have no sort of grasp of history, people tend to think that Denmark's been Denmark for, you know, however long, a thousand years, two thousand, if you ask them, they can't tell you. Sweden's been Sweden, you know what I mean? But things have changed over the years drastically you know at one point norway dominated most of scandinavia then it was the swedes then it was the danes then it was the polish empire then there was a lithuanian empire for a brief time so mm. the uk is quite unique in that it has like it's 500 years of unbroken um what's the word what's the word i'm looking for uh not establishment um civil service right yeah yeah i mean yeah. basically yeah, you can call it the establishment, I guess. But it has a five-year, 500-year tradition of the same civil service. So this is people have to remember this in the context of when everybody talks about conspiracies, et cetera, et cetera, you need to remember this. So in terms of longevity, China, which became isolationist for the best part of three or 400 years, China, the UK, Russia, and the Vatican and to a lesser degree with France, but France suffered the, during the revolution, a lot of records were lost, and they sort of turned the whole sort of establishment upside down. So we don't know really with France. But those are really the only countries in the world which have a long, continuous history of, of administration, where these, these sort of little groups form, disappear, reappear, within the structures of the administration. Whereas the USA doesn't really have that. It's only had, it had two hundred, you know, by the talking you're talking by the time you get to uh Rendlesham, they've got two hundred years at it. And really the, the USA didn't become an administration in the way that we would understand it until really the twentieth century. I mean pretty much before that it was completely ad hoc. I mean people tend to forget that in 1898, the entire American army consisted of 50,000 people. Hmm. They had no want or need for some great military because they were isolationists. The Americans were only interested in the Americans. The Chinese were pretty much only interested in the Chinese. Japan, in fact, Japan would be another country. But again, Japan was completely isolationist. The only two players or three players if you include the Vatican, though that's a difficult one, I guess. The only two players on the world stage which have continuous administrations are the UK and Russia. Hmm. And the UK and the Russians both also have a history of using psychics when it comes to the Secret Service. The Russians did shed loads of experiments in the 1950s, 60s. Right up until recently, the Russians were still doing... Um, there's a famous, I can't remember the woman's name, you know, the one who could move things on the glass. There's famous footage of her. They had two or three psychics and sort of remote viewing and all that, all that malarkey. The Russians were huge into that. 
so you've got these two countries which are players on the world stage which have this sort of history of clandestine occultism within the administration that's probably the best way of putting it yeah so i think tiny as it might be and a few thousand quid year budget i think over the christmas because this is another myth about rendlesham it was the height of the cold war no, it was not the height of the Cold War. If you listen to it, UFO documentaries, the height of the Cold War lasted from no, well, lasted from the day the Second World War finished until the day the wall came down. Well, that's arrant nonsense. Uh, the height of the Cold War was the Bay of Pigs. Everything led up to that, and from then on, the military, if not the politicians, spent most of the time making sure we didn't have a war to the extent they would allow each other's side, each side to spy on them quite openly so they knew what was going on. When the Russians, in fact, they were saying that when the Russians invaded in 1956 even, when the Russians invaded, uh, uh, put the Hungarian rising down, all the Russian tanks that they moved to invade Hungary, had huge numbers painted on the side of them and were quite clearly delineated so that the NATO knew that those tanks were not being used against NATO. They were. It was a big signal, look, this is internal, hmm. etc. That's the way the Russians did it. There were checks and balances all the way down to the sort of level of a major that the Russians that the Warsaw Pact and NATO had with each other, so nobody started a catastrophic war by mistake. I mean, people talk about, you remember everybody used to talk about the red line that was established after the Bay of Pigs, after um, the Cuban Missile Crisis between the White House and uh, the Kremlin? Hmm. The first hotline between the US, between NATO and the uh, NATO and the Warsaw Pact was established in 52-53 after a nuclear war nearly started because of a UFO incident caused by what looks like now was quite possibly a ghost radar return. And it, war was averted because somebody on both sides had the savvy to ring up somebody on the other side and say, is that you? No. Is that you? No. And accept that as being truthful, that they were telling the truth, because both sides thought there was a possible attack about to happen. So the red hot, the red, you know, the hotline between NATO and Warsaw was actually established in '53. The politicians didn't get round it until round to it until six, ten years later. So we're talking about that. It was accepted. You won't find, you know, a memorandum in the Kremlin and you won't find a memorandum in the White House that said it, that says it. But from December the 21st until just after, about three days after the Russian um, Christmas, which is January the 6th, was a no-go area. Don't cause trouble. We've all got, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're from the Warsaw Pact or whether you're NATO, you've all got families, it's Christmas, let's all chill out. And there was effectively a stand-down. So the idea it was the height of the Cold War is rubbish anyway. And the idea that just because the Russians have been invaded had invaded or invited into Afghanistan, depending on your political view, um, that wasn't a big issue at all. The Russians, everybody forgets, the reasons the Russians were invited, invaded Afghanistan was to secure their own borders against the export 
of Islamic terrorism from Iran into Russia. And they told NATO this. And NATO in 1979, 1980 said, well, look, we've all got to act, you know, like, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible. Yeah, get on with it. And that was basically the attitude. That only changed when Ronald Reagan suddenly allowed all the head-banging God-botherers into his crew and they <laughs> saw the Russians as evil because, well, at least the Islamic people, they worship God, so they must be better than the Russians because they're atheists, so we'll give them guns. And that's basically what happened with American foreign policy towards Afghanistan. That right. was the level of it. It wasn't based on any sort of strategic thinking. It was just based on religious bias. Oh, we hate the Russians because they're, they're atheists, so we'll support anybody who supports a god and give them the guns. But in 1980, we sat back and just went, well, yeah, get on with it, because they're doing us a favour, in a sense. I mean, you know, we were trying to take Iran out. So for the Russians to sort of go in and give us a hand, effectively, they were helping NATO as much as themselves. So, mm. again, that's a myth. So I think it was quite easy. Oh, I also should point out at this point, the British liaison officer uh, to the bases, the joint bases, Bentwaters and uh, Woodbridge, um, he was away anyway. He was on holiday. He'd been sent home. He'd gone back home for Christmas. So there was no British presence on the base at all. Uh, but I think the British thought, right, nobody's around. Let's try an experiment with radar. And this goes back into what I was saying about the thought. This is where the thought experiment came back, comes in. I thought we need to sit down. We all get, I mean, this is great talking about Randallsham. It's great talking about specific incidents, but we all get lost in the minutia of the paranormal. What colour dress were they wearing when you saw, you know what I mean? What colour dress was the spirit wearing? Oh, she had the wrong shoes on. That can't possibly be the ghost of, you know what I mean? Oh, that alien can't possibly look like that because that's that doesn't conform to, yeah, yeah, great. We get that. And it needs to be done on, obviously, when you've got sort of cases like Reynolds, you need a forensic look at it. But also, nobody seems to have looked, stood back and looked at where have you come from? with regards to ufology and Rendlesham? And the answer is, you've got, um, I can't think, I've forgotten his name again. <laughs> the farmer from Neath in Wales in 1856 is the first, Reese, I think his name was, um, was the first, as far as we can detect, modern UFO abduction story. He was taken aboard a craft, small humanoid-type figures performed medical, sur medical um, surgery on him, and he was returned to the field that he left, but only he'd lost a week. So there's the first, as far as we can find, classic abduction narrative. That's 1856. In 1850, we first started using telegraph. So the first electronic communication. The first time we're starting to put out larger larger amounts of electromagnetic interference into our own atmosphere. Prior to that, oh, shut up, madam. Hang on. Cat on lap now. Um, <laughs> okay. So prior to that, the world we lived in had basically been electromagnetic free, apart from that which occurred naturally. So start off with the telegraph. We move forward. We get to the 1890s, the telephone. 
the next form of electronic communication arrives. The 1890s sees the flying ships, the airships. We get the airship flap from Australia to California and everywhere else in between. Then UFOs, as we know them, sort of turn up en masse just around the time we start mucking around with radar. Another form, if, if you like, it's not, it's not directly communicative, but it's electromagnetic energy being used by the human race in a way that it's never been used before. And radar, to me, is the key. Radar is where the phenomenon we know as UFOs becomes a big thing. Now, radar involves working on various different frequencies. And I just have a feeling that over the years that radar was used, by the time you get to Rendlesham in 1980, that some people somewhere in the UK administration had noticed that when radar was being operated in a particular way, there seemed to be a plethora of UFO sightings associated with that. Maybe it's a direction that they were using the radar in. I don't, I, I, this, is not, this is not my sort of field of expertise. I just understand that electromagnetic radiation is an energy, like all energy. And it's an energy we've only just started using in relative terms. And that if you look back, the fairies, which is, I mean, the whole story of going under the hill, spending time with the fairies, coming back, and it's 10, it's 10 years later in real life, it's the same narrative. Yeah. The hunter, the hill folk, the fairies. I agree with Jack Valley. It's the same narrative. And it changed sometime in the... And it seems to have changed with every development in electronic communications. And I think that's the key. I think that's the bit that when you look back and you, you look back at what's happened with ufology, that's what we should be looking at. And I think that's the bit they don't want us to look, don't want us to look at, if you see what I mean. That's the bit they want to keep to themselves. The reason why maybe a lot of UFO stories, they will lie about them, is, is because it means they need to fully explain it in the way that they understand it at the moment. They would need to tell us something they don't want us to know, which is to do with the electromagnetic transmissions. I mean, as much as the 5G thing is, is stupid, scientists have admitted that all these radio antenna masts that are pushing out um, Wi-Fi, et cetera, and all that sort of stuff is an ongoing experiment in the sense we don't know the long-term effects because we haven't had them long enough to know. Yeah, definitely. So whilst, you know, wild accusations that, you know, it's calling, causing birds to fall from the sky and all that is probably bullshit. I've got no problem with that. But let's not kid ourselves. We do not know the long-term what happens with long-term exposure to particular lengths of radiation that are caused by Wi-Fi because we've never done it before. We'll find out. <laughs> you know, I mean, it sounds, it's a bit mad because it's a bit Frankenstein when you think about it. But there you go. That's the human race, isn't it? <laughs> we do things. We didn't know what DDT. We did. You know, when we used D, when we invented DDT, we thought it was a great idea. It's just at the time, scientists didn't think it through and realised that once you've killed off a whole thing, the rats take over. 
<laughs> you know, it's like, oh, right, yeah, we didn't mean that to happen. Well, no, of course you didn't. None of us think you did. You did it with the best intentions, but you're nearly wrecked. <laughs> but you're completely destroying whole ecospheres doing it with the best intentions. And again, you know, I think we've got to look at the, with the whole experiments into electromagnetic waves, the effect on the... I mean, you know the ghost frequency, don't you? The uh, fear frequency. I, I know of it. I don't know a lot about it, but I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. Well, funnily enough, uh, one thing I can say about Coventry, that was something isolated by people in Coventry, whereby um, if you live above a watercourse, an underground river, there are possibly times of the year where the way the river runs and the height of the river in the course under, the old, under your house it's quite possible that it puts out a particular frequency. It's 28 hertz, isn't it? And 28 hertz, you can't hear You can just about hear it. But what it does do to you is it makes you feel like you've got a presence in the room with you. It makes you feel like you're being watched. It gives you a slight feeling of paranoia. So mm. that's... Yeah, they were saying that many of the ghosts on the tube stations... They can trace to those that there is a tunnel next to the tunnel that you're standing in that every time a train goes past, it produces a 28, a 28 hertz wave and you get the feeling you can be standing. If you're standing on that station late at night on your own and a train goes past in the other tunnel, it feels like you've got somebody standing on your shoulder look, watching you. Hmm. And you, even to the point that the hairs on the back of your neck will stand up. So we know that frequencies have an effect on us yeah what we don't know is what does radar actually do in the it's all you know okay it's for detecting things in the air fair enough but they are sending a particular beam of a particular frequency into the sky and ever since they started doing that first you got the foo fighters turned up with a few ufos and then the more we've used, the more radar we've built over the years, the more UFOs we see. And now, is that because radar exposes them? You turn the radar on, and it just hit. Uh, it just happens to resonate at a particular frequency, but exposes anything in our atmosphere that is hidden, that's using a similar frequency. Is that the reason why they crash? I mean, everybody says, you know, these people. Um, they come across, you know, millions of miles across the galaxy, you know, billions of miles across the galaxy, and then crash on the lawn and say, you know, crash in the middle of nowhere. Is that the reason? And again, it comes down to this thing. It really does begin to look, doesn't it? We're living alongside another world, which they can access us, but we don't really access them. Hmm. There's a reality alongside our reality, which is slap bang neck, the universe next door idea, that they can cross over into our space and remain hidden, by and large, unless they want to be seen. But radar seems to expose them. Hmm. Maybe that's the key. And I think that's where it's linked to the Marconi desk, because I have a feeling that post-Rendlesham, like, if you're British and you were running that as an experiment to try and force a craft to appear, well, it worked, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, the early radar installations in Britain weren't too far from Rendlesham, were they? The Orford Ness Way. 
No, no, exactly. And the uh, another thing that was not far from um, another urban legend, which has actually been explained, but people still hang on to it. I don't know why. Uh, they set the sea on fire. It was a secret weapon testing base. And the story about the German troops, they were actually mannequins dressed in German uniforms. And they put oil, they put two oil pipelines out into a sort of, I think it was in like a sort of horseshoe shape. And they set fire to the sea. Because, you say again, what's most people's perception of the Germans invading the UK? Um I say sort of the Battle of Britain. They're bombing and things like that. Yes. Yes. And where would they invade? Cities. They'd attack cities, wouldn't they? But where would they invade? Where would they land? On the coast. Yeah, on the southern coast, right? Yeah, yeah. No, they wouldn't. No. Okay. <laughs> they'd have invaded they'd have invaded they'd have invaded Norfolk and Suffolk first. Right. You see this is what I mean about learning your history. Mm. If you look at the geography, the topographic layout of the south of the southern England, south of London to the coast, you have a succession of what is ridges running laterally across east-west, right? So if you invade in Hastings, Dover, those areas, you've then got to basically get over a fortified, about 20 fortified ridges before you get to London. Every which one, you only need half a dozen anti-tank guns on top of it, and you can basically control the whole area. So do you see what I'm getting at? Hmm. There's a perception of history that we've been fed. The Germans, in turn, the British knew, and there is actually a defensive line uh, that runs down the River Ouse, a pillbox is still there. Uh, I can't remember what it was called. But the British knew that the chances were the Germans would actually invade Norfolk or Suffolk. Do you know, the, the, have you ever come across the Red Barnes conspiracy? No, no. Tell me more. Oh, this is classic. This is well worth looking up because to this day, nobody's actually quite sure. In the 1930s, as a tension grew in Western Europe between the, uh, between the Axis powers and the Allies, for some reason, a load of farmers in Norfolk and Suffolk, painted their roofs, their barns, red. <laughs> right. And the thing is, the British knew that the German plan was to invade Norfolk and Suffolk because it's flat, you can use tanks, attack London from the east, drawing all the British troops towards the east coast of the UK, and thus allowing them then to invade sort of the Isle of Wight, Portsmouth, I think they also they intended to invade Paul Dorset and use it that and then swing round and cut London off. That was the actual German plan for the invasion. But there's been a theory that the red painted barns in Norfolk and Suffolk were done by people who were traitors. That they were supposedly signs for where German paratroops would land. They were given that was specifically where German paratroops would be land, and that's where the, their rally points would be. Look it up. It's called the Red Barnes Conspiracy. It's a lot deeper than that because that sounds a bit sort of stupid on the face of it. But in actual fact, it's a really interesting sort of little forgotten uh, byway of British sort of like a conspiracy sort of folklore from the 1930s. But, yeah, it's called the Red Barnes Mystery. Hmm, That's really interesting. Just uh, going back to Rendlesham incident, 
this group that was connected to the SOE and had people involved with it who perhaps had occult interest. Why do you think they were doing what they did at that time? Because I think we, because what this is funny because this gives this comes back to how I kind of entered the whole sort of paranormal net. And in fact, two thousand and six, I joined ATS Above Top Secret. I, uh, and the first thing I ever posted was a story that I was told in nineteen eighty. And that was, I auditioned for a band called the Tigers of Pantang back then, <laughs> up in Newcastle. And I was on expenses, etc. but the, the hotel I was staying in was horrible. It was awful. It was just, yeah. So I said this on the Friday night, I'm going home. So I walked out to the A1 uh, out of Newcastle, from the centre of Newcastle, out to the, to the um, service station on the A1. As it was then before, I don't. I think it had just become a dual carriageway motorway by back then. So I get to the service station. It's about seven o'clock at night. I go over to the thing, put my thumb out, and this guy comes out of the cafe at the service station. Says, "Do you want a lift?" I said, "Yeah, yeah." He said, "Well, if you buy me a cup of tea, I'm watching. I think it was. I think I'll give you exactly what time it was. He wanted to watch Coronation Street. He said, if, <laughs> if I can watch, if you buy me a cup of tea while I'm watching Coronation Street." I'll give you a lift. Where are you going? I said, well, you know, depends. I said, either car, I'm either going back to uh, the Midlands or I'm going to London. It depends which is the easiest. And the guy said, well, I could drop you off. Uh, I could drop you off with a mate of mine down in Nottingham and he'll give you a lift back to Coventry. And I said, oh, brilliant. This is superb. So I get the truck. The truck was Towmaster truck. And I don't know if you know this, but Towmaster was Bell's Whiskey. Right. That was what they did. So I'm sitting at a 40 foot, 40 foot, uh, trailer on the back and it used to to like two crates high whiskey right so i'm sitting in this towmaster truck we're driving down the motorway and a guy suddenly leans over and says oh do us a favor can you just crouch down there's my police escorts here and i was kind of like to say, yeah sure so I got down and got up i said what's the problem he said oh I'm not, insurance means i'm not supposed to carry anybody any passengers because of what i'm carrying and I checked this out uh, with people. I checked this out online. And his whole story adds up. He, it was a towmaster truck because he had the logo on the back. It was correct that towmaster trucks are not allowed to carry passengers. You know what I mean? Not allowed to pick people up unless they're accredited by the police. And they did get police escorts. And it was going all the way from uh, wherever Bell's Whiskey is down to Plymouth on the A38. So it goes down the A1, M1, and it's crossover on the old A38 and end up in Plymouth. And it was for export. And these trucks used to travel 15 minutes apart from each other. <coughs> so I'm thinking, so the guy's picked me up and he's going to get the sack for picking me up. This is a bit weird. So I'm sitting there and as sure as eggs is eggs, weird thing up to a friend of mine. I was like, oh, yeah, really? What was that? And the guy driving the truck tells me a UFO story. Bear in mind, this is... Uh, I could work it out because Motorhead played Newcastle the night before I was at that. But I think it was October the 28th or something, 1980. So the guy sat there and he tells me this story. As he pulled off onto the A38. Now, the A38 now is a dual carriageway lit all the way to Birmingham from when you turn off the M1. Back in those days, it was a two-track road with no lights. He said, I pulled off onto the A38. As I'm driving along, 
So I thought, I thought, I thought, damn, there's a farmhouse on fire. So it's kind of conflicted. It's not supposed to stop. But if it's a house on fire, what can he do? I mean, it's before, this is 1980, no mobile phones for all those kids out there. No mobile phones like that then. You had to go and actually find somebody, get a phone and phone the fire service, police, whatever. I know it seems crazy. But so he said, I've saw this thing. I, Christ, it's a, it's a house on fire. What do I do? I'm not supposed to stop because of my cargo, insurance, police, et cetera, et cetera. So he said, as I'm getting closer to what the thing is, he said, it's not a fire. I can see this object on the ground in the field next to my, uh, next to the road. He said, so I'm, I said, I, I can't help it. I'm curious. So he said, I slow down to a stop. I look out my cab and there's this, what looks like a sort of, a sort of like red glowing pyramid in the field. So I said, what happens then? He goes, oh, he said, next thing I know is this is a policeman knocking on my door cab door saying where have you been and I looked at him I said what do you mean he said your truck he said they were saying about the travelling groups of usually three or four 15 minutes apart and they, the police keep check on them all the way through the journey um, he'd vanished the truck behind him had gone past where the police had, were waiting and he wasn't. In, he should have arrived at the checkpoint where the police were sitting in a lay-by further down the road. His truck hadn't arrived, but the one behind him had. Right. Okay. And where, where was this? Where did this happen in the country? This happened on the A38, just off, just as you leave the A38 in Nottinghamshire and head towards Birmingham. Right. And that that object that he saw doesn't sound too dissimilar to what was seen at Rendlesham Forest. And it was October. And now, I, at this point, I realised that the guy's talking about himself, not his friend. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it literally had happened to him a couple of weeks previously. So that's, that's one thing that happened in 1980. Now, here's another one. I tell this story on my football. I'm a Birmingham City fan. I told this story on the Birmingham City football forum about 15 years ago. Guy contacts me private that says oh winter 1980 wow oh that's weird a38 that's strange he said let me tell you this i said me uh me and three relatives were in the car driving home on the he said on the a38 south of birmingham towards worcestershire so your neck of the woods isn't it um he said uh as we go so there's a there's quite a famous uh, there's quite a famous junction on, in South Birmingham, with a big, it's like got fields on one side of the junction. He said, as we pulled up to the junction, he said it was about two o'clock in the morning. He said, there's this weird craft parked on the ground, which we all saw, and we all never said anything about it. He said, I'm telling, he said, I'm, it's a bunch, it's, having seen that story you've just told, it sounds remarkably like the craft we saw. So I said, well, when was that? He goes, oh, December 1980. I'm like, oh, right, okay, fair enough. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, we drove off. He said, the traffic lights were on red, which is why we'd stopped, which is why we sort of noticed it in the field in the first place. And he said, I thought it was helicopters, but it wasn't. He said, it was this weird sort of shaped object that was lit in a sort of reddish glow, like, um, what have you. 
So I said, oh, thanks for that. So I, th so I put that on ATS. So I, I mentioned that on ATS. About three years later, on another thread on ATS, a guy comes on and he tells the story, exactly the same story this fellow Birmingham City fans told me. So I DM the guy and say, oh, is that you? You finally decided to go public with it. And the guy goes back to me and goes, what? I said, Steve, you told me the story. You told me this story about three years ago. I see you've gone public with it. And the guy goes, no, I've never spoken about it before. He said, I saw this thread. I just thought I needed to tell this story. And it was one of the other guys from the car right. <laughs> had written his own version of that story, which was identical to his mate's. And the one thing that they all agreed on was that the four of them in the car, since from the moment it happened, had never spoken to each other about it. Wow, that's um, that's unusual. <laughs> and the other guy, that the guy who told me the story, was this bloke's ex-brother-in-law. Hmm. It sounds like lots of weird stuff was going on around that period then. Exactly. So I think they knew that there was... A, do you remember the old-fashioned term for it? A flap? Yeah. Yeah, they, you never hear that these days, do you? So there was a UFO... I think there was a UFO flap going on. I think they noticed that the reports they were getting seemed to have a certain consistency. I wonder if they look back at what they were doing themselves on the nights that these reports... Because I... I'm sure if those two people saw those things, I'm sure there were probably half a dozen other reports. Yeah. And some that were probably involved military personnel before the Rendlesham case. So my theory is, is, is that there was a bit of a flap going on. This got to whoever looks over these things and they went, okay, lads, I think this might be the time to try that experiment. <laughs> and that's what happened. I, I, I genuinely think... We had a we had a period of intense activity of a very similar sort of um, what's the word incident, and they put two and two together and thought, "Radar, were we doing anything particular?" Yeah, and what if they were? What if they'd been carrying out experiments with a certain form of radar detection, and that the UFOs coincided with that experiment? which would be secret and we still wouldn't know about. And that's why they'd picked December to do it because there'd be nobody around. It'd all be quiet. The Americans won't notice. And unfortunately, the Americans did notice. And they just, I think the Americans just got dragged into it as, 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 as a sort of um, accident. It was just completely accidental. And it's interesting, isn't it, the way the British have dealt with it ever since. And it was given to the British MOD, wasn't it? Mm. They were to, the Americans suddenly deferred to the British MOD. Oh, yeah, this is yours. This is you. You deal with this. We don't want to know anything about it. It was like it was like somebody at the top of the command knew, but the somebody as high even as Colonel Holt, who was deputy base commander, wasn't in the loop on it. Mm. Maybe that's why the American general came flew in and demanded to see all the stuff on it because he knew what was going on, and he wasn't there because of plausible deniability. If he wasn't there, he didn't know anything about it. Hmm. So you think that somehow Radar was revealing something and then yes. at Rendlesham, they were, someone was applying Radar technology intentionally to try and see something? Yes. Right, okay. Yeah. And it worked. 
And I think on the third night, they said, oi, pack it in, or we'll do this. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was a bit of a show of force on the third night. I think that was, look, stop titting around. <laughs> We've had enough of it now. Yes, look, it works. Very clever, you. Very clever, you. But now pack it in. I think there was a bit of a slap on the wrist on the third night. <laughs> Probably for the best. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, exactly because we, I don't think they know what they're dealing with. I think they just—it's like, a bit like uh, you know, um, it's a bit like discovering fire, isn't it? You know, it burns, but you don't really know. The original people didn't realise it was oxygen that fed it. If you see what mm. I mean, they just knew that it burnt stuff and it, it cooked food and it kept you warm. That was their extent of knowledge of fire. They didn't understand the chemical reason for it to exist, and. I think there's a bit. I think we're a bit like that with this phenomenon, and I think that this links to the Marconi deaths. Is I my strong suspicion is they were trying to develop a radar system which could somehow use this to create their own UFOs as such. Just to, again for those that aren't familiar with the, the Marconi deaths, what what exactly is that? There was an, in the 1980s, there was a spate of suicides connected to people working for Marconi. Predominantly, these people worked on radar installations. We don't know exactly what because it's still secret. But there was, a, I don't, I can't remember the exact figure, but we're talking not one or two, we're talking over half a dozen people mysteriously committed suicide in the strangest of manners. Hmm. And we're talking about one guy got drunk. Apparently, for the first time ever in his life, according to his, according to his partner, she'd never seen him drunk in his life before. Got drunk, filled his car boot trunk, depending what you want to come with, where you come from. Filled his car trunk with um, petrol cans and drove at full speed into a bridge stanchion, where they were. Obviously, the car exploded. <laughs> now, that's one strange way of committing suicide. Yeah. Of all the ways to commit suicide, that where do you come up with that one from? It's very unusual. I mean, there is something off about that, isn't there? And I mean, it could be that this it was a side effect of some of the work they were doing. This is what I think. That I think it goes back to that. You or I, if we start having hallucinations, we can rationalise it, can't we? If you come from our sort of background, you have a checklist of things you go through. Have I eaten something? Somebody slipped me something. What does this feel like? Does this feel like DMT? Does this feel like LSD? Does this feel like mushrooms, this experience? And that's all going through your head. You, you're collating all your back experiences going into working out why you're having this kind of weird point in your life. But if you're a scientist who's basically been in science and never really had much of a social life, anything like that in your life, and you start hallucinating... You think you were mad hmm. because you've got no experience of this. And it's the same for the military. It's the same for the military. They live in a hard, real world where you can measure everything. If you can't measure it, it doesn't, exi- it doesn't exist. So when these experiences happen to them, these experiences are an affront to their reality. Us, bunch of flakes. <laughs> We're going, woo, that's cool. <laughs> and, and that's my experience of many people I've interviewed over the years 
is I'm sitting there thinking, well, that's really, that's really cool. That is. I'd love to see that quietly, not saying it. And they're having a breakdown. They're shaking like a leaf in front of me. People who do jobs that I could never imagine doing have, have broken down in front of me because their reality, their very essence of what they think is reality was challenged by an experience. Hmm. And I think that with the Marconi scientists, the, the, the frequencies they were mucking around with, with those radar, the, the radars they were trying to develop, was affecting the brain pattern. And it was possibly, because they were working on it maybe 16 hours a day, that it was having a, almost like a drug effect on them. And I think that if you look back and if, if we were to ever allowed to actually sort of investigate properly what they were doing and rerun those experiments with radar they were doing with people, you might see under controlled circumstances a similar effect that people believe that they're hearing voices. I don't know what these... I think one of the guys who killed himself, I've got a feeling one of the guys did claim to have been hearing voices telling him to do things. And he completely freaked out and killed himself because of that. Because it's an experience that these people don't have. They live in the concrete real world, hmm. along with the military and science. And this is the problem when you're dealing with something which simply doesn't obey those rules. And it's no use saying, oh, it doesn't exist. They don't happen. They patently do. There are too many incidents like this with people who, bless them, had no experience and no no want of having an experience like that. That's the whole point. Charles Holtz always said, I didn't want to have that experience happen to me. Penister's always said, I, you know, I had no interest in these things. Why the hell did it happen to me? Maybe you could say, maybe you just needed waking up. Maybe that's the answer. I don't know. Hmm. Maybe that's part of the experience is, is a bit of a kick in the backside. You know, come on, kids, wake up. <laughs> maybe that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think when you look at Rendlesham, the one thing that you can definitely take from what was reported is, is that it's very unusual. And the explanations that have been offered up so far tend to try and rationalise it as something happening between humans, basically, on a normal human level, but with a, with a rational explanation for that. But it does seem like there was something really unusual going on that, it's, that you can't quite put your finger on. And and your idea that what we've been talking about definitely kind of, it feels like that might have been what was happening, that there was some kind of experiment into this sort of boundary between technology and, and magic, basically. Yes, yes. I think you've got it spot on there. I think you've got it spot on. Magic and technology, as people say, magic is just unexplained technology. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I agree there. Well, Steve, this has been a really interesting chat. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Well, sorry to have rambled on for so long <laughs> and all over the shop. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. It's been really good. If people want to find out more about you, how best do they find you? Oh, I'll be in a small corner of time somewhere. Doing my time <laughs> travels. I'm, I'm, uh, I could never even remember my own name on Twitter. I'm around. <laughs> cool. Okay. Well, I'll, um, I'll I'll put your Twitter details in the show notes if that's okay. Okay. Thanks, Rick.
Brilliant. Cool. Thanks again. A pleasure as always, Rick. Take care of yourself. Thank you very much. Considering that it happened in 1980, it's a testament to the enduring mystery of what happened at Rendlesham Forest that there is still clearly plenty to theorise about and discuss all these years later. Steve's theory is really interesting. It's no secret that soon after the end of World War II, various intelligence agencies started to research the potential application of some very esoteric concepts. And it's not too much of a reach to imagine those sorts of projects still happening in 1980, at that time of year. The folklore and history of the area is fascinating too. I'm not sure what part that might have played in what happened, but it's great to imagine a mermaid still living at the forest centre, and the incident itself is now part of the local law. That's all for now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If so, please consider rating and reviewing it, as that really helps to promote the podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me at SphereHQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find Some Other Sphere on Twitter at spherical underscore pod, and on most of the well-known podcast platforms, where you can follow and subscribe. Until next time, be safe and well, and thank you very much for listening.